I'm Jill Shaw, and this is Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is someone who has her finger on the pulse of all things politics in Massachusetts. There have been many recent political shifts in Massachusetts. We have a new mayor of Boston, Michelle Wu. Suffolk County DA, Rachel Rollins, is up for the Massachusetts U.S. attorney position. And our lauded governor, Charlie Baker, has just announced that he will not run for another term. I'm excited to talk with our guest today, reporter and Massachusetts Playbook author at Politico, Lisa Kaczynski. Lisa, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. So I've really been looking forward to having this conversation with you, and I follow your writing in Politico. I listen to you on the horse race, and I'm wondering if we could start at the beginning, though, and just talk a little bit about how you ended up doing what you do. You graduated from Boston University. Did you know you wanted to be a reporter and writer right out of the gate, or how did it all happen? I did. I knew that I wanted to be a journalist since I was 12, actually. (laughs) I was always good at writing, always loved writing, and my hometown newspaper had like a student voices op-ed section when I was in middle school, and I started writing for it. And then my teachers would clip out my articles and put them on like the door of their classroom or something like that. And my parents would get calls from community members being like, wow, like your daughter's piece really made me think or something like that. So I was like, this is really cool because I can connect with people. I can hopefully start a conversation about something or give them information or something like that. So I got into journalism from like the very basic fundamentals of it when I was a teenager. And I went into Boston University as a journalism major. Mm -hmm. I did pick up a psychology double major too, but always wanted to do journalism. Uh, Got the absolute pleasure of working through so many local papers in Massachusetts on the South Shore, the Eagle Tribune in the Merrimack Valley, going to the Boston Herald, uh, where I was able to cover the 2020 presidential election, which just was absolutely incredible. And that is how I ended up at Politico. Now, did what you learned about psychology while you were in school, did that influence the way you interview or write at all or how you think about politics? Everyone always asks me that. They're like, oh, you must have done this on purpose. Like picking up a psychology uh, double major must have been perfect for, you know, teaching you how to interview people. I just really enjoyed psychology. I grew up with it from my parents. But no, I mean, I think it's it's always good for interpersonal skills to have a little bit of that psychological knowledge behind it. Yeah, it makes you wonder more deeply about people. Why politics? Why politics in Massachusetts? how, How did this become where you're anchored? Yeah, absolutely. I got my start in politics covering city hall, city government. That's always fascinating. Small town politics, city politics is so interesting. And then I covered the 2018 third district congressional race that Congresswoman Lori Trahan won. And that went to a recount. It was so close. It was so energizing. And it just went from there. I got so lucky when I got to the Herald. I started just a few weeks before Elizabeth Warren launched her presidential campaign in the city that I had just come from covering for four years. And I just couldn't get enough. It was just, it's absolutely fascinating to be so close to some of the most powerful people in the country, to hold them accountable, to ask questions of them, to see how people react to them. And, you know, to watch the presidential races and and other politics be shaped by the people on the ground, particularly with covering New Hampshire and talking to voters all the time. Yeah, that must have been fascinating. I want to talk about Boston, if that's okay, because there's been so many changes locally and in the state. Can we dig in on Boston politics first? 
Absolutely. Three mares in one year. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's it's amazing. So we have a new mayor, Michelle Wu. Let's see, about a month out from the a pretty historical election, first elected woman, first elected woman of color. Can you talk a little bit about this mayor's race and what it was like to follow it? What did you think about it all as it played out? I mean, it was just historic in so many different ways. It was. It was absolutely historic. The most, you know, historically diverse field, all candidates of color. And I think it really moved the needle in in terms of conversations about issues facing Bostonians and particularly communities of color in Boston in maybe a way that they hadn't been. I'll admit that I'm a little bit newer to the Boston political scene just because I had been working in other parts of the state, but it it's been described to me and it really felt like a sea change moment in Boston politics, both from addressing those issues and also from having so many progressive candidates and having the winner ultimately be a very, you know, proud and loud progressive. Right. Um, you know, it really represents not just a sea change in the types of conversations that are being had in Boston's communities, but also just in how the city itself has changed over the past decade and how voting patterns have changed, how new neighborhoods are emerging as, you know, voting powerhouses, how people, some of the more traditional families from South Boston and uh, West Roxbury are now moving out of the city and more younger people who are more liberal are moving into Jamaica Plain. I mean, it's just fascinating. You know, Yahoo Miller at the Bay State Banner did an incredible job of, of noting those shifts. It, it, it was just incredible to watch all around. What do you think it does or what are you hearing that people think it does to the city over the next decade in terms of how we act, how we shift, how we, you know, budget for things, what how we prioritize? What, what do you think changes from a Mayor Walsh led city to now Mayor Wu? A lot of things. <laughs> um, you know, their management style, at the very core, their management styles are different. And, you know, some things will be the same. I mean, you have to fill potholes, keep the lights on, make sure that basic city services are running. That's not going to change. And Michelle Wu has made clear that that's, you know, not going to change. But she said that you can do that at the same time as you deliver bigger, bolder change, more inclusivity at City Hall and things like that. And, you know, she won by 28 points. Voters gave her a very clear mandate for her progressive agenda. And those are the types of things that are newer for Boston. Um, you know, some of the ideas like bringing back rent control, expanding fare-free MBTA service, uh, which she's already started to do a little bit on some bus lines. You know, some of the things that she's talked about in this, you know, this big sweeping change, um, that is definitely new for Boston. And it's clear that that's what voters wanted to see by giving her such a large margin of victory. How did she win with such a significant margin of victory? And would it have played out differently if Mayor Walsh had stayed in the race? Do you think Boston was just ready for this dramatic change? Or do you think Boston was fed a there is going to be a dramatic change no matter what? And now we've got to sort out who's going to lead us. It definitely would have been a very different dynamic in this race if it had been Michelle Wu versus Marty Walsh. And of course, she had stepped up to challenge him before he became labor secretary. So it very well could have happened and was on track to happen. She was going to do that, you know, no matter what he was doing. And I don't think it's clear who would have won that race, to be completely honest. I know that some people have tried to figure it out, but uh, it definitely would have been 
interesting. But I think she won this race because she was able to knit together a broad, uh, multi-generational coalition. Uh, She, you know, in the primary, she had shown that she had the a broad coalition across the city, and she built on it by winning, I think, all of or mostly all of the precincts that her competitors in the preliminary election had won. And that is, you know, big parts of communities of color in the city in Roxbury and Mattapan, she was able to pick up all of those. And so voters really went to her after the three Black candidates who were in the race did not make it through the preliminary. She managed to bring all of those people together, you know, with the vision she was pitching for City Hall. And that's how she delivered such a wide victory. What what do you think the secret sauce was in the end? Do you think it was that she had better outreach strategies, that she was more present, that she was better known from the beginning? Do you have a point of view on what kind of that secret sauce was for that helped her win? Yeah, I mean, she did come into this race with the advantage of having topped the ticket for city council races several times before, Um, even with Anissa Saibi-George on that ticket. You know, she had still, just in the four at-large council seats, had one, had collected more votes than Anissa Abby george She had spent uh, almost a decade at this point, because, um, you know, about eight years in City Hall, building a citywide coalition. And she just, in the end, appealed to a broader swath of the electorate than Anissa Abby george did. You know, Anissa had a more kind of traditional, a little bit more of a Marty Walsh lane, though she didn't win in some of the parts of the city that he did. And she just appealed more to a whiter, more conservative voter base in the city. And as this election kind of showed how the city has changed in terms of political leanings and electorate, uh, Michelle Wu was able to capitalize on that. Yeah, it was a very smart, very savvy campaign. So now she's in office and she's starting to settle in. And there were a lot of different things discussed during the um, campaign. There was mass and cast. There was education. There was a vote for whether or not the school committee should shift from being appointed to elected. There's housing, transportation. We're, we're missing our workforce. And COVID-19 has been sticking around. Where do you think she's going to focus? What has she said her priorities are as she moves into 2022? Early priorities, of course, are the public health crisis at Mass and Cass, Melnia Cass Boulevard and Massachusetts Avenue. That is something that she inherited, of course, has been ongoing for years. And right when she came into office, there was a bit of a dust up with an executive order that the acting mayor, Kim Janey, had issued to start clearing tents in the area. It had been challenged in court. Uh, it's, It's a little bit of a back and forth right now. She's looking at ways to address That situation, and especially with winter coming, uh, getting people into treatment, getting people into shelters, that's obviously an early priority. And that was clear throughout the campaign that it would be one of the top issues. Launching a national search for a new police commissioner, uh, which, again, is something that was inherited. Uh, The new coronavirus variant and vaccines and boosters and how to handle that heading, you know, how to handle another surge heading into another COVID winter. Those are all priorities for her. And of course, she's already expanded just this week, uh, fare-free bus service, a fare-free bus service pilot in the city. And that was one of her big campaign promises was to look into fare-free transit. And she had pledged to expand that program in a year. Uh, She started doing it within her first month. Um, So those have emerged as some of her early priorities. Where's the funding coming from for that pilot with transportation? Is it coming out of the money that came to help us recover from COVID-19 or did it come out of the city budget? 
Uh, yes, it is coming. Um, it's about $8 million from federal funds. Yep. Interesting pilot. So she hasn't had very much time to kind of assemble a cabinet and launch everything. What do we know so far about her cabinet and how is that shaping? Uh, yeah, she had a two-week transition, um, very, <laughs> very rapid because of the acting mayor situation in Boston. So she has started to build out her cabinet. She has said that, it, you know, things are not going to be fully in place until, you know, at least January, which would have been the more traditional timeline. But she has made appointments surrounding uh, Mass and Cass. Um, that was her first big set of cabinet appointments um, in elevating people within the city who had already been working on that response. And then also bringing in Dr. Monica Burrell, who had been the previous state Department of Public Health commissioner um, to kind of be her mass and cast chief and oversee the city's response there. She also won a lot of plaudits. People across the city really cheered this when she has tapped the former leader of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, or I guess he still is through the end of the year, the um, leader of that, Shagan, uh, to be the city's new economic development. It's a little bit of a different role than the one that John Barrows had held, but it's essentially the same position, just a new version of it. But his selection was widely cheered. So she is working on building, you know, an inclusive cabinet and a diverse cabinet that brings in voices from across the city, at least in these early picks. Um, You know, she has started to move in that direction that she said she would on the campaign trail. Yeah. And and what about in education? Do you think she'll make any swift moves there? We have a massively declining enrollment in BPS. There's the issue of this elected school committee on the table. What do you think is going to happen there? Education is really interesting because there is a lot going on right now. Um, You know, there's changes going on with the exam school stuff kind of as we speak. But right now, it's uh, it is one of those things she doesn't get asked a lot about right now, at least from the press. Her earliest education priorities have been, uh, you know, starting to move towards like a Green New Deal in school facilities and stuff like that, you know, including electrifying school buses, building in more supports and wraparounds. You know, this is kind of her language for what she wants to do. In terms of those education priorities, it's honestly, it hasn't been super clear in the first few weeks, you know, what her immediate priorities are for the schools. She has a lot of meetings with a lot of people getting up to speed right now. So I'm sure there are discussions um, that I'm personally just not aware of right now. No, absolutely. And so there are a number of new city councilors who are coming into office in uh, January. So city council works with the mayor. They approve the budget ultimately. Have you seen any foreshadowing of how the dynamics will play out between the new city council and Mayor Wu in the new year? Definitely. Um, Mayor Wu has a lot of friends and allies and is working on building relationships with the new councilors. Of course, she just came off being a city councilor for eight years. And while there's a lot of turnover on the council, some friendly faces remain. And she, you know, has already worked hard to extend the olive branch to the incoming councilors. She made sure to shout them out in her victory speeches and her... uh, you know, inaugurate her swearing in ceremony speech. She mentioned each of the new counselors by name. She should have a pretty friendly council because along with, you know, delivering a progressive mandate and a big progressive win for Mayor Wu, uh, Boston voters also did that on the city council by and large. Of course, there are some more moderate counselors, Frank Baker, Michael Flaherty, Aaron Murphy, who's a newcomer. But by and large, she'll have a pretty friendly council who will also have, because of the new participatory budgeting, a little more power and a little more say over city budgeting. She'll be the first mayor to encounter that. And that that's, of course, something she had supported. We now know who the city council president is. It will be Ed Flynn, who is one of those more moderate-leaning city councilors, but they've worked together 
a lot in the past. He had kind of, he was able to build consensus within the council already just to win the presidency. They've worked a lot because he represents Chinatown on issues related to Chinatown. So she should have a good rapport with the council, but there will obviously be friction. They will obviously challenge her on things, um, just as the council did with acting Mayor Janie, who was one of them up until she took over the acting mayor role and is now back to serving as council president. So, Yeah, good point. Very interesting. And then on the other side, there is the relationship with the governor. And so Mayor Marty Walsh enjoyed a, a really kind of nice relationship with Governor Baker, very supportive relationship. Do we know what the dynamic is between Mayor Wu and the governor? So it's not the bromance yet that (laughs) Governor Baker had with um, Mayor Walsh. They were obviously very close. Um, You know, they talked the day that uh, the governor decided that he wasn't running for re-election. So they're very close. But uh, so there's kind of a starting over period between the new mayor and the governor right now. But she did make a point of going to the state house and meeting with the governor on her first full day as mayor. They've already started the conversations, I'm sure, on uh, regular, you know, issues of the day, but also the big ticket items that, you know, she is going to need his support if she has any shot of getting them through Beacon Hill. She's going to need buy-in from the legislature and the governor on, again, you know, a larger expansion of fare-free service or changes to the MBTA, because that obviously extends outside Boston. And rent control requires buy-in from everyone on Beacon Hill because voters banned it three decades ago. Right. So um, those conversations are already underway. They've been appearing at events together throughout the holiday season because, you know, with all the menorah lightings and Christmas tree lightings and Thanksgiving turkey carvings and holiday baskets and things like that. So the relationship is starting. He kind of joked that, you know, he's not sure if and when the relationship will get to the 10.30 p.m. calls on a Saturday night with Mayor Walsh that, you know, his wife would have to wrest the phone out of his hands. But they're working on it. They seem to be building up a rapport already. And of course, that'll change again in 2023 when there's a new governor. I know. So let's talk about that a little bit. Governor Baker just announced that he will not run for governor again um, for a third term. What do you make of this? And what do you think the ripple effects will be of him not running? Well, the ripple effects are, I'll work backwards on this one, the ripple effects are huge because it just blew the governor's race wide open for 2022. (laughs) (laughs) I think heading into the Thanksgiving holiday, a lot of people had expected him to run. I mean, this was a long, drawn-out process. He had been going back and forth. We had been going back and forth in the media, observers, operatives, donors, like everyone had been going back and forth. No one had a sense of which way he was going to land. Some days it was he's in, some days it was he's out. But yeah, I think the the general consensus was that he seemed to be leaning towards running heading into the Thanksgiving holiday. And then he huddled with family over the holiday. And family, of course, is very important to him and to the lieutenant governor. That was a big factor in her decision, both not to seek re-election and perhaps more surprisingly to a lot of people not to run for governor um, if uh, Governor Baker didn't. This uh, this changes everything for the 2022 governor's race. It's now an open seat race. Um, you have State Attorney General Maura Healey, who is thinking about it even before then. You now have the Labor Secretary, Marty Walsh, who is yeah. now thinking about it Um it's a varying degrees, depending on who you talk to and which uh, TV station he is speaking on uh, today, actually. Um But yeah, so it it just changes everything. You know, Republicans are looking for another moderate standard bearer. Of course, a conservative Jeff Deal, who's backed by former President Donald Trump, is already in the race. But yeah, this really changes the dynamics and gives Democrats the clearest shot they've had at the corner office in about a decade. 
Yeah, it's it's very interesting. It, you know, Governor Baker was really well thought of during his tenure as governor and continues to be. How do you think he'll be remembered by the state and by the country? He's one of the most popular governors in the nation, and I think that he'll keep that legacy both outside of Massachusetts and within it. I mean, he was a very well-liked governor. Polling had showed that he would have struggled to varying degrees in a Republican primary, but he still had pretty good job approval ratings among Democrats and independents. And that's, of course, the coalition you need as a Republican governor to win in Massachusetts and to remain popular. So he will be remembered both as a popular governor um, who there are a lot of people who remember him as like, you know, the good manager, the data guy, um, all those types of things. But there were, you know, significant dings on his tenure, the registry of motor vehicles, uh, the Holyoke Soldiers Home tragedy and his handling of that. And those things um, would have come up as major issues in the governor's race and will not be forgotten by people after he leaves office. What do you think the big issues are are going to be that will be debated by whatever slate of candidates kind of gets pulled together to run for the governor position? At least for now, definitely COVID. Of course, we don't know yes. what that outlook will look like by the time we actually get to the election in 2022. But definitely for now, you know, that had already emerged as an early topic. The governor was taking heat, even before he announced his decision, you know, he was taking heat from all sides over his handling of it from the various candidates in the field. You're going to see a lot about climate change from the Democrats uh, this year, given everything that's happening with that. And every candidate that's running right now is running against the status quo, running against Beacon Hill in general, not just the governor, just the legislature and the way the legislature is acting. This is going to be, you're going hear that word so many times over the next year. Um, I'm predicting it now, uh, you know, changing the status quo and, you know, fighting against the status quo and shaking that up. So those are definitely going to be big issues. Economic recovery is going to be a big deal, of course, linked to the pandemic and everything that's happened with that. So those should be some of the early issues that we're going to see. Yeah, interesting. And just thinking about that a little bit, Lydia Edwards is running in a special state Senate race and Michelle Wu has endorsed her. Can you just talk a little bit about that? And I mean, it sounds like that she'll just move ahead with that. Yeah, so that endorsement, Lydia Edwards was a big supporter of Michelle Wu in her race. um, And then Michelle, in turn, endorsed Lydia as her first political endorsement since taking over as mayor. There's no Republican uh, running in that. So uh, the Democratic primary will likely decide, you know, just on December 14th, will likely decide who the next uh, state senator is for that district. So Michelle's been out a lot campaigning for Lydia already, but it goes beyond, you know, a thank you endorsement or everything. She really believes she wants partners in the state. Michelle needs partners in the state house yeah. who are aligned with her aims and share her ideals and, uh, you know, that she can work with. And Lydia would definitely represent one of those people. And, and is Lydia one of the people who shake up the status quo, do you think? Yeah, I mean, she would, because right now I think there's only one other black senator in the state Senate. She would shake things up just by being there. And I think she has a very different style of politics than a lot of the people on Beacon Hill right now. Interesting. I have a more macro question for you as we end this conversation. But you're out with politicians all day, every day. I'm sure you watch national politics while you cover local politics. How would you describe the populace kind of at large today? Because the media seems very fixated on reporting about these great divides in our country 
But as you travel around and you listen to folks, are, are Americans really as divided as politicians would like us to think that we are? Yes and no. Maybe less so division than polarization right now. I mean, just American politics in general is very polarized right now. Local politics, at every level. I mean, you saw that a little bit in the mayor's race where you, you know, after the preliminary election, you kind of immediately had the progressive candidate and the moderate centrist candidate. And no matter how many times Anissa Saibi George, you know, she would have been considered a progressive in other parts of the country, of course. Um, But no matter how many times she said, like, you know, this isn't my label, like, this isn't my politics, you know, she, because she wasn't as progressive as Michelle Wu, sort of was both considered a more moderate candidate and, of course, did run in that lane. You know, she did play her campaign into that. So I think at every level you can kind of see this big polarization, not even just politics, but on masking or, um, you know, vaccines in other parts of the country and things like that. I think it's just like a very polarizing time. It's interesting what you say, because I look at specific research and it seems to suggest the same thing, that when we really say what we think, we're very close together, actually, what we really believe we want this country and the state to be. And yet, when it plays out in front of us, and when we read about it, it doesn't feel like that at all. Yeah, and that's one of the things that, um, you know, Governor Charlie Baker had kind of said that he was, I guess, sick of or disappointed in, uh, (laughs) you know, depending on which topic it was, but, you know, that that polarization was dominating the conversation as opposed to, you know, kind of that old school way that he did things, which was the bipartisanship, the trying to build consensus, not just saying things to score political points, you know, that was something that he had express frustration in that it was happening, you know, in politics, because there are people out there who didn't want to, you know, act that way. But yeah, it's 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 an interesting time. It's an interesting time. Well, we appreciate very much all you do to cover it. Um, I really enjoy reading your articles, your column um, and the way that you cover Massachusetts politics. And thank you very much for joining us today to talk a little bit about it. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Politico reporter Lisa Kaczynski. There's much to talk about in Massachusetts politics now. And the big question is, are the tides changing or will residents lean towards the status quo? Here in Boston, we're excited to watch as Mayor Wu launches into the work she's been advocating for over the course of the campaign. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day. Have a great day.